And this kind of storytelling is what I love the Sandman for is we can get a one off that's batshit crazy. That's so cool. Yeah, I thought it was fun. And it's still in the same vein. It's still talking about the nature of dreams, the nature of storytelling, the power that dreams give us in our mind, like what these desires in our dreams will give us uh, in terms of motivating us to, to be the people we want to be. episode 238 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss issues 11 through 20 and episodes 6 through 10 of Neil Gaiman's comic and TV series, The Sandman. Okay, so we have to address this right at the top. Oh boy. Brevard County being featured so heavily in this story was not on my bingo card for this project. Oh, I love that. I had a note about that, too. That's in the comic. Uh, Unfortunately, Brevard County, I don't think, made it into the show, did it? Well, they call it Cape Kennedy, which I went and did some research. I always call it, it's Cape Canaveral. Cape Canaveral, yeah. But it was called Cape Kennedy in the 70s, apparently. So sev- oh, interesting. Okay. The, in the show, it's not supposed to take place in the 70s, but interesting that they didn't call it Cape Canaveral. But I mean, yeah, just the fact that it's in Florida and they talk about you know the cape basically like the space coast is crazy to me like yeah that that's one thing but then when uh in the comic there is an issue where they go to brevard hospital H- hospital yeah. which i don't know think is a real hospital maybe it is i don't know yeah i'm not sure but that is literally the county that james and i both grew up and lived most of our lives in so uh yeah that's pretty cool to see it's going not it's not a county you see in a lot of stuff let's no. just say that <laughs> no I, and I would never think that neil gaiman would be like let's write about brevard county florida <laughs> so yeah. crazy Where'd that come from? I, who knows? Uh, that's a good point. So, so this is uh, this is going to be an interesting episode. Um, we have a lot to discuss. We've got ten issues of comic. We've got five episodes of television. We're going to try and combo the two, so we maybe won't be going as deep into the comics as you might expect from our coverage typically. But we will be making comparisons throughout and trying to touch on the comics as we go but our focus is going to kind of primarily be on the show the show is incredibly faithful so it it kind of would be rehashing if we did both so we'll talk about the differences and try to pick up on and talk about the highlights of what we liked in the comics it kind of hurts because like i have a lot of like really comic specific thoughts i want to touch on but like yeah and i know i won't be able to get to them all um but this is the way that we can cram our salmon coverage into three episodes of the podcast and so this is what we're doing if you end up like really preferring we would just draw it out and do do each its own separate let us know you know that's would be good feedback to get um as we continue to just try different different things for different projects this tends to be the best way to, and it's not it doesn't necessarily have to do with sandman it's more television television like the, is is tricky for us yeah feels like the the way that we've found a way into it is like to to wrap both at the same time yeah which we still might do for future if like it's a really long book or it's really different there there's just every project sometimes requires a different approach um, so before we get into that episode, though, which uh, I wanted to at the top mention that we have a poll up on our Patreon right now to determine our next project. If you're listening to this episode when it comes out or the day after, you still have time to vote. Um, it's going to be live until Friday night, basically midnight um, Pacific time. 
and it is down to four titles. The titles are Let the Right One In, Casino Royale, Fight Club, and Stardust. Speaking of Neil Gaiman. So those are the four options. Uh, you can go if you have to be a patron, but if you go on there, you can vote which of those four you would like to hear us tackle next. And that will one of those four will be our next project. We won't even know uh, today, so we can't announce it. But uh, hopefully this hopefully by the end of the day on Friday, we'll have something picked out so we can uh, start reading. It would be crazy if we did back-to-back gaming, right? I can see a lot of those winning, though. Like, we'll, we'll see. I'm not really sure what's going to win. Yeah, me either. Um, also, I'm going to be at Worldcon the first week of September. It's September 1st through the 5th. And I'm going to be on three different panels, and I have a reading. Uh, two of the panels are on podcasting. One is about uh, monetizing a podcast. One is about um, editing a podcast, audio editing. Both of those I'm moderating. And then a third panel is going to be about adaptations, and uh, that is with Fonda Lee, favorite of the podcast, and John yeah. Scalzi, uh, and you know, very excited to be on uh, on a panel like that. Um, and and then after that, I will have a reading. Uh, I think I'm going to read my story from Reckoning that's coming out later this year for free. So um, if you're interested in that, I'd love to see you at the con. If you're going to be at the con, uh, you know, say hi. Okay, so yeah, getting into our coverage this week. Um, I'm going to start off with a synopsis for episode six. So when we left off last week, we were talking about an issue in the comic that we had already read that we didn't get to see adapted yet. And that's this first one here. It's the sound of her wings. Morpheus, now aimless after obtaining his tools, is visited by his sister, Death, and accompanies her as she escorts the deceased to the afterlife. Death attempts to show Morpheus the possibility of finding purpose and fulfillment in his duties as ruler of the dreaming. In a flashback to the Middle Ages, Morpheus and Death visit a tavern where they encounter Hob Gadling, a commoner who vocally wishes to never die. Death agrees to spare Gadling for as long as he wishes. Hob and Morpheus continue to meet each other once every century. Hob maintains that no matter which turns his life takes, he still does not wish for death. Hob hypothesizes that Morpheus continues to meet with him because he is lonely and friendless, which greatly offends Morpheus. Due to Morpheus's capture by Burgess, he is unable to attend his regular meeting with Hob. When their usual location is sold, Hob chooses a new tavern a block away, hoping that Morpheus will find him. The two reunite in present day. Elsewhere, Desire continues their plans. So this is a combination of an issue we already covered and a later issue that we did read, actually. Um, I want to say it was called Men of Good Fortune, uh, issue 13. Yep. Um, so some new material here as far as comics goes and some some uh, what we already got. You mentioned how much you like this Sound of Her Wings issue. I yeah. also really love that issue, and it makes it into the show here. And what might be the best episode of the show, I mean, I think it's really, really good. Um, I think it's debatable, but... It's just got a lot going for it. I think the the immortal story, the combination of two of my favorite issues, was awesome. Yeah, the immortal story is really good. So you you also include that. Um, they did a little bit of tweaking to make it work for the show, um, yep. which we can talk about. But I, yeah, I really like this episode. Um, as as you can tell, I guess I'm saying it's like one of the best. Um, I, I let's talk about death. I think first and yeah. foremost, what do you think? Loved her. I thought that she really captured that hopeful, merciful death thing that we had. She had like a good attitude, even though what she does is incredibly sad. And the interaction between dream and death, you can feel like a love and a connection. And like this, like 
we talked about this with the old guard how like we can't fathom like what love between like eternal beings would be like and just seeing these two these two characters meet was so cool to see it adapted and i thought that they brought a lot of gravitas to it i thought that like a lot of the story where we're you know she's having to take people along um to the afterlife hit as as solidly as it did in the comic which i thought was going to be difficult to pull off um that that baby one is fucking yeah it's tough man that that continues to be i mean really really haunting but but powerful and then uh yeah and then the stuff that we get with morpheus and sort of i love seeing morpheus i thought that morpheus was kind of going to be this character that didn't change throughout the run he's kind of going to just be this powerful being that knows everything and can do everything but we're seeing growth in a character like morpheus dream um in sort of coming to grips with he is lonely in eternity he, he's the ruler of his own realm but at the same time he's not like omnipotent which is something that they talk about in uh one of the issues as well um and yeah seeing him sort of meet with this guy every 100 years was like so fun it's so cool to see like the the culture change and yet the people in the bar are still saying the same things over and over yeah every, yeah, every hundred years kind of a running joke yeah man if it, all you got to do apparently is just say out loud I don't want to die, so let me just get it on records. I don't want to die. Um, <laughs> and if, any, if there are any deaths listening, um, come make a bargain or, or any Sandman out there, um, and and I'll be the, the one who comes back every 100 years. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> well, and that's interesting, too, because at some point you would want death because everyone you love would be gone and all of these things would change. And yet, like, he keeps giving him the choice, like, do you want to keep living? Yeah. So, like, he at some point he could just say, yeah, I don't want to keep living anymore. So you could just seemingly live for a really long time and then eventually welcome death exactly like that it signed me up yeah go until you don't want to go anymore i think that's what we all want right uh also got to shout out kirby howell baptiste uh as death i i think she did a great job we talked about how the most important thing for us was getting that there was a, there's this surprising warmth and friendliness and nurturing sort of nature to death that I think makes the character so interesting in the comic, and that's what I want on screen, and that's what I got. I think this is a this is a faithful version of, of Death in that way, and um, I loved it. I loved her performance. Um, that warmth came across, you know, I, <laughs> the the different scenes where she's interacting with these people as the, you know in their final moments are heartbreaking and. Oh, we do also get some lines from the very final issue, I think issue 20 that we read. Um, some of Death's lines from that issue make it into this episode where she talks about how, like, if she's the last, like, she'll be the last one in the universe and she'll turn the lights out or something like that. Um, that That is all from that final issue. Um, some some of the only material from those later issues that actually makes it in here, um, those, those last four, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things we have to note um, that were really fun with the 100 year thing is we saw Joanna Constantine, Constantine yeah. show back up, but a different like, you know, generational. Yeah. And she's she's in the comics. And or is that kind of saying that she's like, I couldn't tell whether they were saying she was also an immortal being or not. No, I don't think so. I think that was an ancestor who happened to look just like her in the way that you can do on TV. Right. Yeah. Um, because in the comic, it's like left like something about she'd worked with Dream before. And I don't know. I, I kind of was thinking there was something else going on. There's the first time they meet is in is in the tavern. But then at some point after that, but before something else, she like does a job 
for Dream. And that's been mentioned now in the show and in the comics. So I'm, I'm assuming we'll get an issue later that shows some further adventures of Dream and Constant, uh, Joanna Constantine. Yeah. So, but in the show, it was cool to see Jenna Coleman again. At least we got to see her one more time. Which, yeah. And, and it sounds like maybe we'll get to see her again if we get a, a, a further season of this. Which, by the way, did you see if it's confirmed or not? I, I think I saw some, some rumblings about a season two, but I didn't know if it was official. It's all but confirmed, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it should be. It's doing so well, it seems it's like. It's doing really well. Tons of buzz on social media and everything. But with everything, there's a lot of weird stuff going on with the streaming platforms yeah, right true. now. Like, we don't know what they're going to, what they're going to, how expensive this show is in comparison to, like, what yeah. they needed the show to do. So, anyway, it, I, it looks like it's going to come. I also heard that there were clips that were released on Netflix's, like, YouTube account that were... Uh, cl- clearly from issues 17 and 18. So they've already filmed some of the stuff from issues 17 and 18. Um, and and they like removed those clips from YouTube. They, they have since been removed. Huh. Gaiman said that it was going to cover 1 through 20 in the show. And one of my observations was that really 17 through 20, there's not much of that in the show. So it's like, is that make it into season two or do they just kind of skip it and go immediately to volume Two, which would be issue 21 and on (laughs) i think i also heard that the show originally was going to have an an additional episode so i think some stuff has moved around and maybe the editing process like they realized they wanted to end it at dollhouse where maybe they shot more than that at this point i do like that decision actually uh as we get to dollhouse i think that is like a natural stopping point for season one of the show it felt like it 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 felt like the right spot issues 17 18 19 and 20 in the comics they are kind of standalone one-off issues, so it would feel weird to sort of end with one-offs. I agree. I was I was kind of like worried when I was reading them. I'm like, are we going to get this in the show? Where is it going to occur? Because if they end on one of these issues, it's going to feel weird. I also have I had two other things that I should say now. First is I watched the show first because I wanted to get the show watcher. I thought you might do that. Yeah. <laughs> I kind I kind of I kind of went back and forth, but I I mostly stayed ahead of the show. The only one that I didn't get comic first was the immortal stuff because I hadn't read that issue yet. Um, I, I was like, oh, this is an interesting addition. I wonder if this is in the comics. And eventually I did get it. Yeah. So my reasoning was just that I wanted to have that perspective of like people who are going to just watch it on Netflix. Like, what is it going to be like for them? And then I was able to um, I was able to go back. And I think I, it definitely changed my opinion on it because I did feel like the second half wasn't quite as exciting and it wasn't pulling me in as much. It kind of felt like it kind of slowed down the pacing. It got bogged down a little bit with this dollhouse stuff. But when I read the comic, it in hindsight, I appreciated the show more like it sort of re reacquainted me with like what was going on and why it was important and how it all tied together. That's interesting. I appreciated it more. Yeah. One of my concerns about that, and it seems like most people are fine with it, but I was thinking about how other than the Sandman himself, other than Dream himself, we don't get a lot of characters in the comics and in the show that are sort of consistent throughout the storylines that play out. You get a lot of these like couple episode um, runs for different characters. And by the end of the season, I'm like every character we're watching right now, other than dream and occasionally like Lucien or whatever, or Matthew, um, almost everybody's new. And now we're a wholly involved with these new characters doing new things, dealing with new issues. And it's like, it reminds me a little bit of Good Omens in that way, because remember, Good Omens also felt like super stuffed with tons of new characters who have all have their own little stories. 
Um, and here we we definitely had that. And like maybe that's part of the appeal of the show is like you're going to get all these new characters all the time. It feels like there's a yeah. lot of churn. And I think that's intentional, right? It's like it's almost like part of the storytelling process here is telling individualized small stories. Yeah. And in that way, it kind of feels like a Doctor Who to me to talk about Jenna Coleman, that connection, mm. like the way that like you'll get introduced to these characters, you'll get invested in them, you'll go on this adventure with them and then you leave them behind. Okay. And then like, you know, the story continues on with someone like the Doctor being the central key figure that keeps like changing and reforming as someone new but still all these people are sort of just like orbiting and flying past this person's life yeah kind of feels the same way with dream that seems like a good comparison to me but i but i i appreciate it for that too because i don't think a lot of storytelling is doing that and it's also like early enough to where he neil gaiman's building out the world Mm -hmm. and then coming the second half he can sort of play with that world he's created and set up at that point i'm wondering if if it'll continue to do this throughout its run or if we'll start seeing a lot more recurring characters i think it'll start to be a lot more recurring and and like uh interconnectivity yeah although i wouldn't be surprised if there still is a decent amount of like new stuff like all the time um, because I do think that's part of the 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 way the comic works is is the constantly new characters and, and and new things to see and experience. It also makes for fun situations like one of the things I have to talk about from this episode before we move on with the every one hundred years we see a dream meet William Shakespeare and yeah, sort of cool. make a deal with William Shakespeare. Yeah, in both the show and I believe in the comics issue they reference this stuff with the Fae and how there's he's, he's, he's like talking to death when he first comes into the tavern. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, the, the Fae are all leaving our realm or something. And she's like, pay attention to where we are and listen to, you know, she like kind of cuts him off. And then yeah. that is basically directly referencing an issue that happens later in this run. So if you don't, if we don't ever get this in the TV show, um, in the comics, there is this production of Midsummer's Night Dream that happens later. Um, and it's, it's basically issue 19. Yeah, it's basically put on for a bunch of the Fae who are who appear in the play themselves. And uh, yeah, it's you know Puck ends up playing him, playing himself in the play. Like it was some interesting things happened there. But I don't know if we'll get this in the show. Probably not. I think we might honestly. Yeah. And I think that uh, just to talk about the issue because I don't know how much time we will have at the end. Yeah. Um, I love that issue. The only my only regret is that I didn't have Midsummer's Night Dream more freshly in my mind. Yeah, it did feel like if I because I've never read it actually. So yeah. if I was super familiar with the play, it would probably help better. But it was really fun and interesting to see that. And then, yeah, to come back to have Dream, the deal that Dream makes here with William Shakespeare is like, if you want to write these great stories, you got to write these two for me. And then you can write the rest of them. and You'll have all these great ideas and dreams. There's an interesting thought put forward where he says all the great stories will orig- like will always return to their original form. Um, I don't know. It's interesting, right? Like the idea that there are these like great sort of foundational stories that that are told again and again throughout time. Um, it, it seems similar to, I guess, the storytelling theory people have about how there is only a certain number of stories. Um, yeah. Or the hero's journey kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's... It, I feel like it's like if you reduce... To me, it's, it's if you reduce something down to its base elements, then like, yeah, there are only a certain number of those. Um, but that, 
I don't know. It, it, is it really worthwhile to reduce things down to that? Because so much of what makes a story interesting is not the base building blocks. It's right. everything else about it. It's almost like thematically, there's like similar themes that yeah. you always will get, but then they'll they, that are that are interesting to human beings, right? Right. But they'll they'll continue to give you different emotional responses based on like how the author wants to like thread those into the story and stuff. So yeah. I think that you're always going to get something different with ideas being threaded in. Now I thought you were going to talk about uh, how Dream shows up in every different hundred years, like a completely different uh, costume. Yeah, and I, I thought it was awesome. funny early on. My wife made the comment that. Uh, he looks like he's in uh, My Chemical Romance, <laughs> like he's in the, the Welcome to the Black Parade video. <laughs> right. He's That's super awesome. goth, but he's wearing this like, it looks like he's like a pr- kind of a priest. I don't know. It's, yeah. Uh, it, it's, he's got some interesting outfits, right? He's got this like long black hair and it, the hairstyles mm-hmm. change. It was a pretty fun thing. And then seeing it in the comics is actually really cool, too, how his costumes change like constantly and we see a different version of Dream every time. Yeah, I really like this. And then, like I said, blending these two, these might be two of my favorite issues. So to blend them into one episode was really cool. They ch- had to change something, and I thought they did something really smart with it for the show. In the comics, the issues came out in the late 80s. So he is already free when they're supposed to meet back up in the timeline of the story. He's free from Burgess's basement. In the show, they modernized it. They moved it to like modern days when he's getting out. So therefore, he is imprisoned in the 80s when they're supposed to meet. And so they change it and have him not show up. And that actually adds a really nice dr- dramatic moment of seeing the guy come and think that he, like, he's been stood up. Especially because he says the thing about, like, if, if I see you here in another hundred years, that'll mean we're really friends. And then so he gets stood up and you're like, that would a gut punch that is. Yeah, it's sad. And then, like, to see them reconnect at the end is actually a really heartwarming moment. I don't know. I like that a lot. And, and I think that moment works better in the show because of that addition. So it's a really clever way to use um, just a, a, an accident of, of the time change. Um, and use it to actually say something interesting in the story and make a make a plot point that exists in the comic and make it actually work better, I think. Yeah, I agree. That that really worked for me. They had a uh, really old Glenn Grant, by the way, uh, Scotch, that he that he asked. He asked for, nice. like, what, what's the oldest uh, uh, oh, yeah, drink he yeah, got? And he's like, oh, I got, a, I got an ancient Glenn Grant. And I just think it's funny because I have a 25-year-old Glenn Grant uh, pour that I've been saving for, like, a really special occasion, so... Um, I just, I don't know, thought it was cool. <laughs> I'm like, me yeah, too. That's cool. <laughs> uh, we were talking about d- the development of season two, so I did I want to mention this before we move into the next episode. It's just that, um, as far as I can tell, Alan Heinberg has said that they've broken the stories, they're working on the scripts, and they've spent extensive amounts of time like already working on season two. So I'm very confident that like it's all been developed. It seems like the same writers, gr- core group of writers are working on it. Um, so hopefully they can keep this sort of consistency and, and, you know, bring it into season two. Okay. Yeah, I like that. So episode seven is called The Doll's House. In 2015, Rose Walker and her brother Jed are separated when their parents divorce. In 2021, following the death of both parents, Jed is placed in the foster home system, despite Rose's attempts to locate him and claim legal guardianship. Rose is unknowingly a vortex, a being who naturally attracts and manipulates dreams and Desire and their twin sister, Despair, conspire to use Rose against Morpheus. Aware of Rose's nature, Morpheus plans to use her to track three errant residents of the Dreaming who are still at large. Rose and her friend Lytahall travel to England to meet Unity Kincaid, 
a wealthy, recovered victim of sleep sickness. Unity reveals that she is Rose's biological great-grandmother. Unity offers to fund Rose's search for Jed, and Rose and Lyda travel to Florida. Unable to locate Jed in either the dreaming or the waking world, Lucienne and Morpheus deduce that the rogue dream Galt has severed Jed's consciousness from the dreaming. Rose approaches Lucienne and Morpheus in the dreaming for assistance in finding Jed. Meanwhile, the Corinthian hunting for Rose is invited as the guest of honor for a serial killer convention. Yeah, so this is the one where I had the note about, oh my god, they're introducing so many new characters. We're in episode 7 of season 1, and we're starting a bunch of new plot lines. We're introducing tons of new characters. Um, and, and I just was curious, like, is this going to feel overstuffed for people, overwhelming? Um, as someone who hadn't read the comic yet, um, did, were you getting any of that with this? Like, how, how did you feel about this episode in general? Yeah, I think that this is me. This is where I started to to feel like a lot of stuff was happening very quickly. And we weren't, We like you said, there's a lot of characters. And it felt like we weren't spending enough time with our core characters. Um, and I think people, if you're just watching it for enjoyment and are really liking the show, I don't think it's going to slow you down necessarily, but I do think it's not going to be your favorite episode. Um, just because there's so much groundwork being done, you know, there's some cool interactions that happen and, but it's a lot of setup. So yeah, it definitely, this was probably the episode I could point to that made it feel like I was starting to get like a little bogged down and the story didn't have the same propulsion that the, the previous. Well, it's kind of resetting now, right? Like we, we got our entire series of episodes about John D and then we get the death episode, which is like a nice kind of cap on all of that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we're starting something new. I mean, it makes sense because in the comics, this is essentially two different runs and we're beginning the next run of comics. Right. Um, And we're going to, we're going to set up and and follow their story. Um, They tried to tie this back in the show. And this might've even been something from the comics. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, maybe you remember, but Rose Walker in the show is on the phone uh, it, during the diner conversation. Yeah, the, they did try to tie that in. With yeah. that, uh, I can't remember the name of the woman now who's who's in, who's in the diner who gets killed. And they made it so that they're like friends and they had this it's like, in brief conversation. It is in both. So so it's, it's interesting detail. I guess it does tie the storylines together a little bit. But it almost feels more like an Easter egg than anything else. I think um, it's for eagle-eyed comic readers. Yeah, because then... I, I I did spot her and I noticed the the rainbow hair and I was like, oh, that's their version of Rose Walker in the show. And like I realized, and it says Rose, I think on the on the uh, on the phone. So that was a, a giveaway. But if you don't know who that is, you need, you don't. You're just like, oh, who's this random person? I think also at one point we're in Rose's like apartment or something, and we see a picture of her. Yeah, yeah. Later, in a later issue, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Couple things get introduced here uh, that we should talk about, but before we before we do, I want to mention that um, one of the things I have seen that people are not <laughs> uh, fans of, and I do agree with this, um, is that we see despair here gets introduced, and she is basically just an overweight woman without makeup on, and that is the personification of despair <laughs> in this show, yeah. and that's not. Not a great look. Now, yes, she does like self mutilate with this like hooked ring, and I guess that's part of it. But like, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've just seen some people posting about how, yeah, it's like thanks a lot, Neil. Uh, but we're doing fine. We're not despairing or whatever. Like, it, it's it, and it's one of those things that I don't think is aged super well from the '80s. And it's interesting to see that it's one of the few things that didn't really get addressed. And right, and, and I think that's because of this like fat phobia to me is like one of the newer sort of um, 
areas where we're we're starting to have a lot more awareness and um, careful thought about how this actually hurt, harms people. And you'll still see it cropping up a lot these days, even in like well-meaning, you know, uh, progressive kind of areas of art. You still see this stuff happen. Um, we talk about it all the time with Stephen King, um, and we get some of it here with Neil Gaiman. And it's like I don't, I don't think he's like a bad person for this or anything like that. But it just shows that like everybody has blind spots, and I think it's still worth calling them out so that people can be better about it, or at least realize what they're doing, yeah. um, and realize that this kind of stuff can be harmful. Yeah, and it's not like they couldn't have updated the character if this is... Because I don't think we've seen Despair in the comic, have we? We have, actually, yeah. We've briefly seen her. She looked kind of like this. She's a little more monstrous, I would say, in the comic, whereas they made her seem more like just a person here, um, which I, I don't know what's better, I guess. I, I kind of lean towards more monstrous is better because it's it's less like identifiable like as just a person. I don't know. They updated a lot in this show, so you would think that they would have updated something like that as well. There's ton, you know, there's plenty of despair that you can portray differently, you know. Yeah, and it seems like they, you know, as much as they are, you know, willing to shift around some stuff, they visually are still trying to convey a lot of similar characteristics in a lot of these characters. So, in in some ways, it's pretty faithful to the comic. I just felt like it was an area where you could have. You could have maybe done some changes, and and like it's it's more of a criticism of the original character, and then I guess it's probably of like if you're trying to be as faithful as they have been overall, you know, the decision would have to come down to like completely change despair, and that's a big that's a big thing to do. Um, I, I maybe you should have done it, but uh, the 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 problem goes back to the original comic and the conceptualization because like to me it's like if you're gonna imagine a personification of despair, there are so many other ways you could go than this um so it's kind of a weird weird thing to land on we also get this convention uh well so these convention planners for this serial convention and they are talking about trying to attract the notice of the corinthian and they are like collecting eyeballs uh and like copycat murders this comes out of nowhere, and I'm curious as a, as a show watcher, like, what did you think of this? I thought it was so bizarre. I honestly t- genuinely thought that they were deviating heavily from the comics. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's part of why when I reevaluated and read the comics and, like, thought of the episodes in hindsight, I started to see, like, where it made sense to do these kind of things and the things that Neil wanted to try to address and sort of confront in ways uh, I think the idea of a serial killer convention is pretty funny and interesting and weird. It's very funny. And this reminds me more of like a Good Omens kind of bit. <laughs> yes. But but it's also darker than pretty much anything we get in Good Omens. This is a very dark because it's serial killers, right? And we get some like actual pretty horrific imagery attached to what these people are doing. Um, but it is it's on its face like kind of ridiculous and funny. And it's this really dark kind of black humor. And um, I know we don't get a lot of the convention here, but I, I kind of love it. Honestly, I, I, I feel like I, I I had a journey with it where I wasn't sure about it. But then I kind of came all the way rack around to just loving it. Um, and now it's like one of my favorite things from this from these comics is the serial killer convention. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I could see like people not liking it, but I, I just personally ended up enjoying it. It quite felt a, bit. a little hokey at first. Like it felt like such a weird thing to do. And then as I saw it happening in the way that the jokes were coming up and, and like the commentaries being made, especially in the comic, like in 89, when the comics were coming out, like the women are talking about how like they're seen as like black widows and nurse murderers and all this stuff. And they're like, it's like a satire of 
conventions in general, which I'm about to go to a convention, like, and I've been to a lot of conventions, like, uh, the topics, the, the panel discussions are some of my favorite parts. But just imagine serial killers, like, addressing these right. things. Right, and the, the idea that a bunch of serial killers could get together and, and do this, it's hilarious, and but also, like, it equates them in some weird ways to, like, the comic creators and writers and stuff of conventions and artists, they're collectors, which like a lot of comic book people consider themselves collectors. So it's really funny, and there's a lot of smart commentary there. Again, we're skipping ahead to an to an episode we're not in yet, but um, it's, it's being cool. set up here. Yeah, yeah. So another shout out here: we got Stephen Fry showing up as oh, Gilbert, yeah. and uh, I think this is a another one of those situations where I went, "Yes, perfect casting." Um, sure. Didn't know because I read the comic first, so I was like, I, I didn't know that it was going to be Stephen Fry, and I was, I was amazed. I was like, this is, yeah, this is perfect. So I, I couldn't believe the number of times that they cast someone, like all the people in the roles, like Nimrod, for example, one of the guys who's organizing. He in the comics. When I got to the comic after having seen his portrayal, it's exact. It's almost exact. And then I saw Stephen Fry as this character. Yeah. And then eventually would see the comic book character and i was like oh my god perfect casting i could, can't couldn't believe how good it is and then just seeing stephen fry like i love stephen fry he fit the role perfectly um he's got that like whimsical british thing that he needed to to bring to this character very cool uh so one of the things i i initially struggled with is that like i actually i listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and i have followed a lot of the stories of a lot of different serial killers um i just think it's interesting um you know me and a lot of other people, I guess. <laughs> I'm not alone. Um, I've heard that it's a little popular. Yeah. And um, so when I'm hearing, like, like Nimrod is super similar to a real killer. That, that um, I forget his name now because I'm not great at remembering details. Um, but I know that there was, like, kill- I actually don't know if, it, if he was if he was active before or after this. I'm not really sure. I, I assumed that he was making reference to actual serial That's the thing. Killers. I couldn't, I should have looked up the timeline. I'm like, is he is he referencing a real serial killer here or is this like something where he made it up and then like reality happened to put, spit one out that is very similar? Whether Nimrod was one or not, there's a lot of different names for different killers that come and I'm sure that some of them are referencing real killers. Yeah, and so like it's, I don't know, it's like that's kind of like, tricky because it's like oh this is you know this is a real thing that actually happened they actually killed a lot of people and it's pretty horrific but on the other hand there's also like this weird culture surrounding serial killers where there are like legitimately fans of the serial killers you know they have their groupies they have people who write for, to them women who fawn over them and, and you know it's it's a really weird culture itself there and i can see looking at it and equating it to fandom that you get it at a comic convention um, and so there is this like weird natural fit, even though these, as much as these things seem so different, you're like, I guess there actually kind of does make sense that this could, it could be a thing if like something like this could actually happen. I don't know. Yeah. So let's talk about unity and like the, how unity in the comic and in the show has come back around now and we sort of get her story. Well, she works. She's, it, it's kind of all part of this uh, new plot line where we get Rose Walker introduced too, and we find out that she's the grandmother. She had the sleepy sickness, which ties back to the start of the start of the run where this is people who, who had this like eternal sleep while uh dream was uh, imprisoned. And then they woke up. And so she's an interesting character because she's she's essentially not lived a life. And now she's this old woman who is like still a child at heart, I guess, um, or in, in mind. 
except she kind of lived a life in her dreams, it's implied. Um, yeah. Because I, 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 I felt like they weren't really trying to play up the idea that she was, like, still no. young. She was. She showed a lot of maturity for someone who, yeah, was so seemingly a teenager in their 20s. Yeah, or whatever, and I yeah. guess that's explained by her, quote-unquote, living a life in her dream. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was it was fine. I I, don't, I guess I don't have any strong opinions about it. Uh, you know, I think it was fairly accurate, fairly faithful. Yeah, I like you know sort of where the story goes with her. Yeah, one of the more interesting changes was Lida. I think actually, like she's been made a little more prominent in the TV show. I, I think I liked overall what they did with Lida. It made her a little bit more interesting of a character. I so Lida was the, one of the only characters where I was just a lot of the stuff that went on with her. I was not as interested in. For whatever reason. Yeah, I, I just felt like she it felt like they were padding it out when I was watching because I hadn't read the comic and I didn't know what she did. I mean, she's not as, she just does. I don't know. She doesn't do as much in the comics, really. She doesn't. Yeah. No. And I think that's part of what it is, is I, I just felt like they I don't know the her story with like her husband and the ghost thing and the way, you know, that some of that takes place in the comic for sure. But it was almost an entire episode. It felt like dedicated to, to or at least half of one of the episodes dedicated to that. And it felt like a lot. It's spread out over a couple, I think. But you're right. I think if you add it all together, um, I, I, the dividends it, it does pay, though, is I think it the moment where he sends the ghost back and he tells her a ghost doesn't belong in a dream. And, you know, you have to go to your appointed place. Like, I think that moment hits harder in the show than it did in the comic for me like in the comic it was just a, a thing that happened and it was like a function of his and i was like oh yeah that's interesting but like i didn't really have any attachment to their relationship i was still orienting because i think like you get introduced to the situation and then i within a few pages it it is over whereas here it builds up and like i felt genuine emotion about it that that i think does work I think you're right. I think I think that was the intention there, right? It was to build it up and and make it more emotional. Um, I feel like I still felt the emotion, but I brought in obviously the baggage from the show when I read the comic. Yeah. Um, but right. I I think what it is for me is like when they were playing house, which that the next episode's called playing house. When they're actually in the house and like hanging out together and stuff, their conversations and they're having sex a bunch, like that stuff to me just like it, it bogged down some of the momentum. Right, for me and you hadn't read the comics so yet, so I think that's that's super valid and that. You're probably not alone, would be my guess. Uh, but let's talk about Rose, because she's such a prominent character. Like, what do we think about Rose's character? Do we, did they do her justice? This may be controversial to say, but I think I like this version better than the comic Rose. I think they worked to make her feel uh, and behave with more agency in the show than she has in the comic. I think they aged her up a little bit too in the in the show. I think that in the comic she's like a teenager, like eighteen, and here she's like been to college. Said 20, she said she, I think she's twenty one in the show, and in, in both she's like looks younger than she is or something. I think it's said. But in terms of like emotional maturity, like she's gonna adopt him, and like it seemed more. Well, more... that that's what I was gonna get at. Like her relationship to Jed, searching for her brother. That storyline makes more sense to me, and it it, it was a little more clear what was happening um, than it was in the comics. And again, I don't know if this is just an issue with, like, me and and comics, and, like, I'm not necessarily doing the work of, like, reading between the lines as much as I should be, but, like, sometimes when this stuff's playing out in the comics— I don't quite grasp what's happening until it's over. And then when it's over, I'm like, oh, now I can kind of see what was going on here. But for a little while, I'm just kind of like, who is this? What is she doing? I'm kind of confused. 
Um, whereas the show really like walks you through it more. That makes sense. Yeah, because I mean, and that's been the case, right? Is like I think some of the time in the especially in the first half, there were things that we didn't have explicitly stated in the comic that we picked up on more in the show. And like, I appreciate it for that reason. I, I like that they did more of that. I also felt like the relationship Jed doesn't have a character really in in the comic, yeah, and then here they, they they gave him a lot more to well, do. Well, he has his dreams, I guess, but they they changed that quite a bit. I, her story overall takes has the most changes, I think. Yeah, and even his dreams, like the Sandman, the old Sandman, isn't him. It's it's some other guy that he's like imagining in his own mind. Like it's all just taking place in his head rather than right. him actually being the hero and doing all yeah. these things. But is it a version of himself? I guess it's kind of kind of debatable. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I guess it's kind of stated that this Harold guy or whatever was the old Sandman, and he brought his wife into. He died, and then he brought his wife into the like this kid's dream, Jed's dream. And that's they were sort of living in the contained dream world of just Jed. Right. And we had this like, what's his, what their names like Blob and Goyle or something like these like something very. Yeah. yeah something and that, like that gets changed to a different character in, in the show. So that's another like pretty big change. I actually like that change a lot, um, especially giving the depth to that character where like she has developed and doesn't want to be a nightmare and wants sees the power of like being a dream instead. Like I thought that was very cool. Well, and that starts to introduce one of the uh, plot lines for our character arcs for uh, dream that I think I, I, I talked to my wife about this afterwards um, because the show does a good job of making you kind of go, man, dream's a jerk. Like we see a lot doing a lot of stuff where he, you know, he's being mean to Lucian and he, you know, he is like very merciless at times. And, um, she was asking me about the difference in the comic. And I was like, I think they took a change that has sort of already occurred in the comic. Like he is already different in the comic than he was before. Whereas in the show, they, I think they tried to play it out through the story a little bit more. And and make it more present in the in the storytelling to where we can see the change happen over the course of the season versus it's already sort of happened. Um, and so I I like that ultimately. So you're saying that it's already happened in the comic? In the comic, it felt like he he was changed by his time with the humans in Burgess's basement. Um, and I, I'm not saying he doesn't change at all, but like he is a little more constant in the comics than he is here. Here, I feel like we're seeing more of an arc. It's more pronounced. Yeah. In terms of just him him being more merciful, but also like understanding humanity more and his role and his relationship. I mean, his interaction with death was his understanding his responsibility and then stuff with Rose is kind of showing his connection to humanity. And he even goes to, this is jumping way ahead, but he goes to Desire and basically says like, you know, we're not meant to control them. They're sort of meant to control us and, and all of that that we'll get yeah, into. Yeah, that, that's bit. like where that arc leads to, I think, for him. We'll, we'll revisit this again um, as we come back. Uh, I think we also get introduced to a lot of the people in the house here. Uh, and, and I wanted to touch on them a little bit. They're all really interesting in their own ways. We have Ken and Barbie, um, we have, which are, they're interesting, right? It's like a, the kind of similar to what you would expect for Ken and Barbie, but he does a few things to make them a little more interesting than that. And I think especially Barbie with her dreams, her dreams are really fun. Mm -hmm. They're like really cool. fantastical and they're really elaborate with like the names she has for everything. And she's this like princess who's got this, you know, companion with her. And I love that that made it into the show. Cause I was not sure if it was going to make it into the show. And I thought it was really cool when it did. 
I felt like a lot of these characters, as I was watching again, I thought that these were deviations. I was like, yeah. these are these characters are wild. Like, <laughs> what is happening right now? And then I read the comic and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, basically, word for word. Yeah. Uh, another character I do want to mention, because I don't think we'll have a chance to if we don't mention him here, is uh, Mervyn Pumpkinhead, which is just like this janitor in the dream world. And the thing that delighted me about this character is one very notable that he's like a pumpkin head and he's like this weird dream monster. Um, but in the show, he's I heard his voice immediately. He's voiced by Mark Hamill. Oh, is that who it is? That's what I didn't. I, I should know. I mean, he's that's, such a famous voice actor. That's Luke Skywalker himself, who I'm named after. So I should have known. Um. <laughs> but but it has more to do with like his his like it, he has using almost like his Joker voice from the Batman. That's animated the thing. I'm not as familiar with his Joker voice, which I know a lot of people know him from so that's probably what it is so that's interesting because i i do remember seeing this character in the comic at least briefly but i feel like they brought him forward and he like had some more lines and did some more stuff in the show i think so i think this will be a bigger character going forward. i assume so. i don't think that this you cast someone like mark hamill to voice act this character and not have like an arc or at least a few issue an issue or two pertaining to yeah. this character like in some way well returning back to the house um we also get um the 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 owner of the house who does these like burlesque drag shows um you know interesting very faithful to the comic brought to the show then there's this these sister lover what we don't know these two women and they are like draped in veils and they have they have the largest collection of stuffed spiders um, they're super goth and in in kind of ethereal and like I was convinced they were they were themselves a dream and then they end up just being weird people. Um, it's really really cool and I was happy to see them in the in the uh, show. A little bit changed, but for the most part the same kind of thing. Right. Um, I think in the in the comic they wore white, which is a distinction that I was like, oh, interesting, because I I saw them all dress in black. Well, they were like they just had almost no color to them. Like I felt like they were just like really like. They look like ghosts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which, re- again, made me think they weren't real, but they were. Um, it, part of it, they're blonde um, under those veils in the in the comics, whereas here they have, like, the dark black hair, which, you know, I think works with the whole goth aesthetic. I loved Hal's character sort of, like, in his dream, becoming this performer, and, like, that's his dream he wants to perform. And viewing but- it himself, too, yeah. And yeah, in that in and putting on these drag shows in his dreams and stuff, I thought that was so awesome. And I was like, oh man, I wonder how in 1989 this comes off in the comic. And when I got to the comic, I was so pleasantly surprised that like he handled it with great care and like it was done really well. And there's this like whole thing about he's like dreaming about because I think it was harder for identity reasons in in the 80s, late 80s, like that. Um, dreaming about like sort of identifying more more openly and things like that and I was just like wow like good, good on gaming for for you know handling it in a way that I thought hold, held up to even today yeah I mean and we're, and we're not necessarily experts on that kind of representation no. but no. I agree there was nothing there that, that stood out to me uh, maybe there should have been I don't know <laughs> what did you think of Gilbert when he was first introduced um, like did you did you have any theories about what this yeah, character was pretty pretty quickly in the show uh, as soon as he showed up to save her in the alleyway, I'm like, this guy is something weird. Uh-huh. This is a dream or a nightmare. I didn't think nightmare, but I definitely thought this is a dream. This is some entity, um, we, especially because we didn't see him at first until that moment. Um, and then it just became more and more clear to me. I was like, yeah, this is... And the, the, as it went on and there was like another additional nightmare that was missing, I was like, it's got to be. Yeah. Fiddler's Green, we, we learned later. My wife was onto that pretty early. I think it was next episode when they when they ride together or maybe that was episode nine whenever they're in the car together that was when she first guessed that he was fiddler's green 
I think that that was kind of my 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 period as well. I think I realized something weird was going on with the fight, yeah. and then. But and there's then... always something weird going on in this show, in this show. So. Okay, so episode eight is called Playing House. Despite Lucian's protests, Morpheus agrees to help Rose locate Jed. During the day, Rose and the other guests at the bed and breakfast post signs around Cape Kennedy, which attracts the attention of the Corinthian. That night, Morpheus and Rose travel through the dreams of the of the guests, eventually crossing into Jed's dreams which Galt has manipulated to provide an emotional escape from his abusive foster father. Morpheus rebukes and punishes Galt for stepping outside her duties, though Galt maintains that she disobeyed because she believed it was in Jed's best interest. Meanwhile, Lyta seemingly reunites with her deceased husband Hector in the Dreaming. Hector attempts to convince Lyta to stay in the Dreaming and have a baby with him, and when Lyta wakes up, she is visibly pregnant. The Corinthian locates Jed and murders his foster parents, kidnapping Jed to lure Rose to the serial killer convention. We're getting a lot more Corinthian in the show. Um, I think they actually did a good job of fleshing him out as character a little more here in the back half. And so I was thinking about what we both kind of predicted last week. I don't know about you, but I kept thinking about that and how I feel like we are both kind of right. Because you said you thought maybe the Corinthian was going to be the main antagonist going forward. And I was like, no, he's just a stepping stone to something else. And like both is kind of true because he is a stepping stone to uh, ultimately desires manipulations. But he is also a pretty prominent, if not the most prominent uh, antagonist going forward. And especially in the show, I I think they... I don't know. I guess it's in the in the comic, too, but it felt to me like they just gave him a little more time on screen. He had a few more interactions with Rose Walker and Jed, which made him a little more like rounded. Like he had Jed out of the car and was like befriending him versus just being in his trunk. There were some differences in the in the in the two. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a cool episode. I liked that they were sort of helping Rose try to find her brother. So, like, she's found this family, this found family, since she really only has Unity Kincaid left and Jed sort of missing. And then, I, you know, I touched on the, the Galt stuff before. I like that this this character gets agency and decides to, like, for the greater good of this child, because the abuse is just, like, so... It's hard for even a nightmare to look at kind of thing. And like real the nightmare would, would come to the aid of a child that's being abused is, is kind of a cool idea. And this is a pretty big change because in the comic, it's these two characters. They're little monster gremlin goblin guys. They're little monsters. And it seems like they're they just want to like exist in this like version of the dreaming that they've created. So there's some similarity there, but the motivations are all different. It doesn't seem like they have any sort of like good motivations to me. Um and they are sort of banished by Dream for what they've done. Similarly, Galt, we see, ends up being banished here. And this is the part where I think they made Dream look worse because Galt is clearly trying to help the kid and, like, mentions, like, you know, he's being abused, you know, his life is so bad, and, like, I wanted to be different, and I wanted to not scare somebody for once, and he's like, no, you're, you've, you've, you know, done something you're not allowed to do cat, like cast her into the darkness. And, um, this upsets Lucian who like sees this as some sort of judgment that, you know, not allowed to change. You have to be, you have to fit your role. And it's, I really like this interplay where we're seeing, uh, we're seeing dream come to grips with his idea that he is got a role to play. He's got a job to do. And him projecting that out onto everybody else, but also like he has to learn this lesson about like, yeah, you might have a job to do, but you also 
there also is room for change. And that's like a, a, a sort of arc that we see more pronounced in the show. Yeah, I love the stuff with Lucian. Um, I think that having Lucian be like a, a voice of reason and pushing back against dreams, sort of like immovable rules, because that's something that's talked about is like the reason he's created. So we can kind of see both sides of the story. Dream is the way that he is, because in the past, he wasn't able to stop the vortex ending an entire universe or reality or whatever that was. Aeons ago, he says that like this entire universe was lost because he couldn't do his job. And he's like, that will never happen again. So because of that, he sticks to his rules so strictly and he's he'll kill people who are the who are the vortex with no remorse. He's you know, he's he's basically doesn't show mercy to his any of these people because they're sort of pushing along this vortex situation that threatens the the entire, you know, collective consciousness of all these people. So he's stuck in those ways. And yet Lucian is seeing the good in these people. And the, well, like what is good in humanity and, and sort of like the way that Lucian is pushing back. I well, love. not just humanity, because Galt's not human. The, the, the potential for these creations of dream uh, to themselves change, which is not something that we see dream really seem to consider possible. Yeah. And I think we're going to see Dream realize that outside of his role, like his job, he's also going to have this agency and and explore what life has to offer in, in ways. And, and I don't know. I think that'll be something to track going forward. So one thing that is different here, as far as I can follow, is Lyda being sort of impregnated by the Dream in the real world. And then he sort of lays claim to the child. And he says, I will, you know, that's my child. It was conceived in a dream. Because I thought maybe they were playing with something that happens in issue like 17 with this this muse. Mm. And there's there's this mention of this muse. Um, it, un- unfortunately, I think it's kind of a icky <laughs> issue as far as like. Let's just talk about that issue yeah. now because like getting to the end, we've already talked about 19. Let's talk about issue 17. Yeah. Calliope. I believe it's her name, and uh, it's this muse. Homer's Homer's muse. Yeah, like back in you know, long time. Yeah, ago. and so uh, captured by some author going way back, who's now really old, and ends up trading the muse to this new, like younger author who trades like this really gross, like bezoar thing, uh, for for uh, Calliope, and then Calliope is this like nude muse who is just like kept in a bedroom. And he's traded essentially sexual slavery to this uh, to this other writer who like literally rapes her. Um, And he does this to like get his inspiration to write his books, which works and he becomes rich and famous. Now, as a metaphor for creativity and the lengths people are willing to go and like what you what you're willing to give up and compromising yourself and in in pursuit of these dreams I get it. I get why you make this decision and why you think this is a good idea, but ultimately it's not, uh, it's, it's, you're dealing with something that's very real and, and, uh, it's a, it's a, unfortunately a trope that we've seen come up time and again, where it almost like lessens it and it, and by, by using it as a metaphor, I, I don't know. It's just like, yeah, it's just not worth it to me as much as it, it, I get why Neil Gaiman decided to do it. Yeah, the, the sort of muse idea, like he wanted to like dive down into that because we hear of muses all throughout art and all this kind of thing. And then the darker side of that and the way that he, of course, being this like mythology sort of historical author wants to play in the space of 
this character who was Homer's muse and is hundreds of years old and and is also in the to get to your point is also the mother of one of Dream's sons or something yeah. like that. And I thought maybe they were combining that with the lightest story. We kind of already touched on the all this lightest stuff, so if you're cool with it, we should probably move to the next episode. Okay. Okay, episode nine is called Collectors. Lucian and Matthew deduce that Lightest pregnancy is the result of Rose's increasing power, which threatens to break the barriers between the dreaming and the waking world. The Corinthian calls Rose with Jed, sharing their location at the serial convention. Rose travels to the hotel to meet them, accompanied by Gilbert, a fellow guest at Hal's B&B, and a self-stylized gentleman. Lyda continues to meet Hector in her dreams and finds that her pregnancy is advancing at a rapid rate. Morpheus notices increasing damage to the dreaming, which Lucian attributes to Rose, though Morpheus is unsure of her theory. Morpheus finds Lyda and Hector in the dreaming and realizes that the vortex has allowed Hector's spirit to inhabit the dreaming, in lieu of him passing on to the afterlife. Morpheus banishes Hector from the dreaming and informs Lyda that her unborn child will one day belong to him as it was conceived in the dreaming. Rose and Gilbert arrive at the hotel and search for Jet. While searching, the Corinthian and Gilbert recognize each other, causing Gilbert to flee to the dreaming, where he is revealed to be a personified Fiddler's Green, one of the other rogue dreaming residents. Gilbert relays the Corinthian and Rose's location to Morpheus. Yeah, uh, I love this episode. I think this is another really, really strong one. Um, up there with episode six and episode five, I guess, that is probably my favorites. Um, I, I think the serial killer convention, again, to me, really works. It's fun. It's so funny. And and we haven't even mentioned the fact that like they're posing it as a serial, yeah. like, C serial <laughs> convention. Like, so, like, it's so funny. Yeah, uh, it, it's funny. And then just the idea that, like, they call themselves the, the serial convention, but there's no serial. <laughs> like, they don't even try. Once you get inside, like, it's obvious. Now, in the comics, I think they have, like, emptied out the hotel other than the convention goers. But in the show, I don't think that's the case. There's, like, other random people in the in the, in the <laughs> hotel. <laughs> and, like, they're just having, like, these panels about murder. <laughs> Yeah, at one point Gilbert like goes into like different panels and realizes. I thought that was really funny, man. Like it's a pure comedy thing where like he's poking his head into each panel discussion and then like listening to what they're talking about, and then we get his face as he starts to like with horror realize what they're discussing. <laughs> it's yeah, really good. It's really funny. <laughs> I wanted to touch back in with Matthew the Raven. Um, I so in the comic Matthew the Raven gets introduced in this run. And he comes in and he is sent to watch Rose Walker. That's sort of his role. He's separate from Dream for most of it. He is this uh, observer who occasionally comes back and reports. This version of Matthew worked better for me. I think this was a good role for him. Um, I had no problems with Matthew basically going throughout the rest of the show. So most of my problems with Matthew were the introducing this character into those early issues where he kind of didn't belong in my opinion. I understand why they did it, but um much well he didn't feel like this comedic relief sidekick anymore. Now he was a part of the dreaming that had a role to play and was sent out to do tasks and was interacting with Lucian in interesting ways. So I liked Matthew going forward and it's interesting that this is where it lines up more with how Matthew is in the comic. Yeah. I bet you what they're doing in those first few episodes too is like they're bringing having already read much further than we have as well. I'm sure that Matthew starts to become more of a comedic character yeah. and they started threading that in really early. And like I said, just tonally, it was kind of like clashing a little bit. 
in our last episode yeah. we talked about this. I just but. wanted to touch back in on it because we had. I feel like I, I that was like one of my sticking points, and I just wanted to touch back in and say like ultimately it didn't end up being a problem for me. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was this this idea of agency and the way that Lucian is seeing that like um, Galt and some of these other characters are ga- gaining this agency and how Lucian took over the dreaming when Morpheus was captured and there's this whole uh, sort of there's this tension between Lucian and and Morpheus. And it's because Lucian is like, look, I, I handled this while you were gone. Like, give me some responsibility. Like, let me have some agency here and let me help you. And and basically Morpheus is be, being stuck in his ways and saying, like, I control everything here. And I'll, you know, anything that that happens, I'll, I'll take care of. And that that like we've said, that growth that we see over time between these two characters is awesome. And Lucian's definitely one of my favorite characters. It's just this like librarian that has like every book that's ever been written or ever will be written in, in the collection yeah. and does a lot more in the show. Uh, Lucian in the comics barely shows up at all, honestly. Yeah, exactly. I like that. It, you know, gave the character more to do. Uh, maybe this is stuff that happens in later issues. I'm not really sure. But yeah, I agree. Really like those additions. The library's cool. Um, you know, all good stuff there. We start to see Rose traveling between the dreams of the housemates. And yeah. it's explained that because she's a vortex, she's able to go into the different dreams. In the comics, we we sort of get um, a series of dreams that we flip through. It's its own issue. Like, basically, this issue starts and everybody goes to sleep. And then over the course of this... It's called Into the Night. Over the course of this full issue, she goes into everybody's dreams and they kind of start to blend together and create this vortex of all yeah. dreams. Really together. cool issue. I actually really, really like this issue. And I, I just wanted to point out one of the specific comic things that I liked too was there was a moment where we had the two, um, I, I don't know what to call them. It's the the spider ladies. We had their two, it's Zelda Zelda and, Sh- and Chantal. They literally call themselves the spider women at points. Spider women, okay. Um, and the way they did the dreams of those two is interesting because they play out simultaneously and they play out um, on top of each other. And it, and the way I read it was that I read it from left to right across the, the opening of the page. And I think you're supposed to, because they do this thing where like a little bit of one image crosses over the seam. And I thought that was a clever thing. And this is probably a big comic thing I don't know about. But I was like, this is this is the hint that I'm supposed to read it all the way across because it spills over the um, the, the the spine of the of the comic. Um, and 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 so you go from left to right all the way across and then you come back down and you read from left to right all the way across the bottom. I don't know. I just thought that was a fun way to play with it again. Like again, finding a way to play play it differently. Yeah, it's funny how like some sometimes you have to use like both sides of your brain. It feels like when you're re- you'll have to like remember that somebody's saying something here and then read something there and then cut back to that other side, like you're saying. Um, and something else that I haven't talked to you about is just like a lot of it tends to be like top down. So whatever, yeah. like the hierarchy of like this bubble being above this bubble being above this right. bubble, even if it's left or right in the frame, means like you go to that one first. Yeah, usually. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been it was it was cool that the way he was able to manipulate it. And when we get into Rose's dream in the comic, like that was one of my some of my favorite imagery is just like the way that she's like all encompassing and pulling in all these dreams and they're like flying around together and doing all this. So I don't the, the nudity was interesting to me, too. It was kind of especially because like I'm not certain how old she's supposed to be. Yeah, I think she's supposed to be like 18 or something at least. Yeah, <laughs> But I mean, it's it's like, I don't know, like I, I there's always, something natural about nudity, obviously. Exactly. Like, like I, I don't want I never want to get too huffy about nudity because like ultimately like I'm fine with it. This is a comic made for adults. 
it's okay. like sexuality is not something that's like bad inherently when you see it. Like, oh my god, it shouldn't be nude. Like, right, no, right. but like you do, you know, you do kind of want it to be like equal opportunity and not just like male gazy the whole time. I get that. So there, there is some potential stuff with that, but like I, I was ultimately fine with it. Um, I feel like overall, the nudity was mostly okay in the comics. Um, it, you know, it mostly felt that in this case, it also kind of felt to me the kind of nudity you would see of like angels or that kind. You know what I mean? Where it's very, it's not supposed to be sexualized. And, you but know. I also was totally fine with them not doing any of that in the show. <laughs> like oh, yeah. I felt like it would have been distracting. It would have been like a strange choice, and like maybe that means that it shouldn't have been in the comic. I don't know. Um, I, you know, if you, if you have strong feelings about that, I'm not going to argue with you. I get it. Um, it just, yeah, it seemed fine, I guess, ultimately to me. So yeah, keeping things moving. Episode 10 here is Lost Hearts. Morpheus interrupts the Corinthians keynote speech to the serial killer convention, but the Corinthians shows Morpheus that Rose's power enables him to defend himself against his creator. Morpheus informs Rose of the great danger she poses to the waking world, prompting Rose to temporarily restore the dreaming and allowing Morpheus to unmake the Corinthian. Morpheus punishes the convention attendees with clarity about their crimes, allowing Rose and Jed to leave unharmed. That night, Rose confronts Morpheus in the Dreaming. Rose is ready to sacrifice herself to save her friends and brother, but Unity joins them in the Dreaming and convinces Rose to transfer the Vortex into her, allowing Morpheus to end her life. Morpheus realizes that Desire impregnated Unity to pass the Vortex to her descendant, in an attempt to have Morpheus spill family blood. Morpheus confronts Desire, warning them against further schemes. Morpheus remakes Galt as a good dream and endeavors to act as a more benevolent ruler of the dreaming. In the waking world, Lyda gives birth to a son and moves with Rose, Jed, and Hal back to New Jersey. After being reproached by the Dukes of Hell, Lucifer ponders revenge on Morpheus. Okay, yeah. Uh, I thought this was a really good episode, too. Uh, right up there with the rest of my favorites. Um, I, it's like, where to begin? One of the things that I think worked better for me in the show was the finale of uh, the Corinthian storyline. He's giving this keynote. He uh, is, it, it, Dream shows up, says, you know, you've inspired all these humans and look at what all the misery you've caused. I also think that's an interesting point too, because it's like, I think serial killers became more known at least. Like it was a thing that was people were knowing, knew about in like the 60s and 70s, right? And like this is taking place in the 80s and 90s. And like that idea of like maybe the Corinthian while Dream was captured sort of like is to blame for the rise of serial killers. And that kind well, of thing. we're not sure. I mean, yeah, I guess I guess he, he he's in like 198. Like this is like World War One era is when when the Corinthian um, we see at the beginning of the show, at least. And, and uh, we see um, Dream get captured. Yeah, I mean, serial yeah. killers have been around a long time. Um, for sure. We just know. More yeah, now, we know about yeah. more about them. But um it's an interesting little theory that like I don't know if he's at the ba- like at the at the basis of all serial killers, but there's some implication that maybe he is, at least making it worse. And uh, I think this this whole reckoning that happens where Dream comes in and has this momentary confrontation where the Corinthians actually stabs his hand because of the you know Rose being there and the power that that gives him and like, kind of unlocks his ability to fight back. Like his plan comes into 
focus a little more for me. Like I can understand like what he was trying to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, because in the comic, he stabbed him in the hand and, and Morpheus just took it and was like, I'm still going to unmake you immediately. But the, it was cool that they played with the idea that Rose's vortex is taking power from Morpheus in that moment and making him vulnerable. And, and he has to actually, they have to, Rose, it takes a combination of Morpheus and Rose like sort of working together to take the Corinthian And it down. makes Corinthian more of a threat to Dream, whereas in the in the comic, he never really is. <laughs> um, it does change it though. You know, I, I, there's something to be said for that like super hyper powerful dream right that like it's like you can't contend with but i do think in terms of relatability and an arc for the character vulnerability is not a bad thing yeah it's not bad um and then we see him curse all these serial killers with the full gravity of what they have done they have to feel it now they no longer can like protect themselves by making themselves out to be the victims, right? And and the stories they tell themselves, the dreams they have about themselves, he strips that all away and they're faced with the reality of what they've done. And we see that play out in the show as they're all dejectedly walking out. We see one commit suicide. We see uh, uh, another turning herself in. Like, we see this play out. And I felt like that moment sold that for me more like I was cheering on dream in the show even more because I was like fuck yeah he's like he's really got him I don't know it's the thing that you wish you could do right like in real life like you wish there was a way to make these people actually feel what they've done feel the empathy for the victims and they and, and that's like one of the wild things about them is that they're literally unable to do that and that's why they are able to do the things they do and why you never you almost never see them in fact never see them like feel bad about i don't know like express remorse like you almost never hear about them expressing remorse and if they do it's probably not even genuine it's probably just to get something so yeah it's it's uh it's cool to see that and uh, use magic in a way to do that in this comic i thought was clever uh, you know setting up this whole serial killer convention is a funny joke but i was kind of like damn so you know the corinthian dies but now what happens to these people like they're just going to continue to kill and yeah that's a f- that's a really clever way to to have that satisfyingly sort of yeah. conclude and, and like if, if you had any doubt about dream doing good him immediately uh <laughs> taking about 200 300 uh serial killers and 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 making them all uh reckon with their crimes and 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 not i we assume not kill anymore he's done some good here for sure (laughs) a bit of filmmaking like around this time period that i liked was when rose and jed were like in her dream and like all the serial killers dreams were coming in yeah That that was cool so we see we have that in the comics right we see some of these serial killer dreams or flashes of just their crimes and like we see like some of the stuff they've done and it's some pretty horrific imagery and the way they bring it into the show is cool because it's it's yeah um rose being able to dream walk through the and she's with jed which also makes it like even scarier because now you have a kid who's witnessing these same horrific things well and she would turn and it's not like she was like in she didn't have a lot of control in that moment she was like turning and she would go through a doorway and there'd be another one of the serial killers so she was like a trapped in a nightmare yeah dream walking yeah was that crazy. was a cool moment i and again like they get gave jed a more to do so this also is the finale of the unity which we were talking about earlier unity's plot line and she so so Rose is in the dream and she's now the vortex is full on full display. Her her friends are getting sucked into this vortex. It was unclear to me like what that meant. But then it's revealed like, oh, they're fine. Um, as, as long as we deal with you, 
Dream allows all this to happen, knowing that he can still repair it up to this point. But if it goes further, he couldn't have. And he tells her as much. I yeah. Think. And then like in both the comics and the show, I think it's a great job of like, we got to kill you to stop this. And I'm like, well, fuck, how do you get out of this? And then there's the reveal that they've set up of Unity was supposed to be the Vortex, and it got passed on to her mysterious child, which we talked about is in the comics. We didn't know who the father was, and, like, how did this happen? And there's uh, she comes in, and she, she gets the Vortex from Rose, who is able to give it to her in the form of this, like, crystalline heart. And... Um, she takes it and then she dies. It seems like maybe from old age and just sort of like a natural death in, in the comic. I, it was a little more unclear to me in the show. It felt like maybe she died because of this moment in the show. Yeah. Um, she didn't seem to be as sick. Like she was really sick in the comic and in the show. It just seemed like in she the was comic. Yeah. yeah. It's like she was on death's door already. Whereas right. this made it feel more like she was literally just self self-sacrificing. It's sadder in the show because she had this whole life that she wanted to have where she was going to have Rose and Jed come live with her and they were going to be this family and that gets that that's not in the comic so like that being taken away from her makes her sacrifice hit harder and again like a few times I see them doing that in the show where they're they're like trying to drive the emotions home a little more there's a part here where I was you know I watched the show first so I saw it happen and it's this like moment that's almost like out of Scott Pilgrim versus the world where she like pulls the heart out of her chest and I was like this has to be portrayed they must be making a change here from the comic but no like it, <laughs> literally exactly, exactly like it was crazy yeah. I was like there, this must be some interpretation here like this is wild she like pulled this heart out she gave it to her they like snapped it it's exactly <laughs> what happened um, and I like it I, I you know I do, I do like it I just thought like wow that's really a big step to take yeah uh, you know, did you notice that that symbol, that the heart that she pulls out is the sigil of desire? Like, yeah, it's pretty similar. So it's like that's kind of also showing desire's impact on that whole situation there. Yeah. So so let's talk about desires. Desire had some sort of plan to get Dream to kill one of his own family. And that is said in a way that is clear that there would be some sort of really bad repercussions. And he almost does it. Um any theories as to like what that is and who and who or what is it god that would enforce this the creator i think it's unpredictable yeah. i don't think there's a way to know yeah. right now but i like the idea that there's another force at work the, um but at the same time like these beings have been said to just be you know basically outside of all other gods and everything like that so the endless so it'll be interesting to see like how they all come about but the rules of not spilling blood is cool. I thought it was clear in the show for me as well that like if he had done it, something would have happened. And, and just that tension that's then built up and then the, the threats that are sent back and forth. And then here we get all I, most of the their names at this point of the endless. So we have dream, death, desire, despair, destiny and delirium and delirium. Right. Who's the prodigal? I think I'm not sure. Maybe I was that, that was what the, I don't know that that was my we've heard about delirium. We hear about this prodigal is missing. I assumed it was delirium. Maybe there's another one. I don't yeah. know. So the ones that we haven't met are delirium yeah. destiny and destiny. Yeah. Very curious about them. Yeah, I would love to know more about them. Yeah. yeah. And then we get this this final confrontation between desire and Morpheus, which I thought was so awesome. one of the things I wanted to mention is in the comics. I felt like it did a good job of explaining desire a little more to me to where I understood how desire is sort of working in this moment. So 
Dream threatens Desire and then leaves. And then uh, we see Desire be like, you know, until next time, I'll draw blood or something. It's in the show. And uh, it, it, I don't know. It, it, it worked better for me in the comic because it's, it's explained that Desire is a creature of the present. And the even the memory of what just happened fades immediately or the, the import of what just happened fades immediately. And it, it's all about this like momentary in, like impulse and tying that back to desire. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so so it explains the character a little better for me, I think, than I yeah. than I got in the show. One of the other things that that like is notable is it sounds like from from Morpheus's threat from dreams threat. It sounds like dream death and destiny are all on the same side because he says, like, do you really think that you you desire could contend with me or death or destiny? Oh, you're right. He, he, yeah, he sort of allies himself with destiny there. Yeah. yeah. So that's cool to note going yeah, forward. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so another thing that happens in the show, uh, and it's, it's in the comic too, but it plays out a little differently, but like there's this final moment where Dream is on this beach and he is building new dreams. And I thought this looked really and cool. Nightmares. This is like in Nightmares. One of the coolest looking moments, uh, you know, the, the, the special effects I thought looked spectacular. And then we see Galt is sort of resurrected here as a dream, which pleases Lucian and sort of leans into the idea of like, I now understand that like I can change and like he's read in the summary, maybe going to be a more benevolent ruler of the dreaming. Well, and he and he gives more responsibility to Lucian says like, when I'm away, please handle yeah. everything for and me. So a lot of that's kind of a change from the comics, right? Like we don't get a lot of that as far as we know, yeah. at least at this point. Yeah. Um, so I thought this worked really well. I actually really liked this final moment. And um, I, I like this this edition of this plot line. I thought it, it, it was a good little uh, capping to this to this arc that we got played out in the show. Gave the emotional weight that I feel like I needed out of like the whole all of the dreaming world characters. Like I think that it adds a lot. And then in the show, we get this final scene, which we definitely did not get in the comic, which is Lucifer sort of pondering, all right, here we go. We're going to fucking... And also, we see Azazel, which they say it differently than I do. I don't know. Yeah, that looked cool. Like, all the little faces coming through space and stuff. Like, Pretty cool. Very yeah. neat. Obviously, we're getting more Lucifer. Lucifer seems more powerful than we've been led to believe so yeah. far. Just based on that final scene, like, I'm like, holy shit. All right. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I assume that's going to be season two stuff. I This is like kind of a little teaser of what is what could be to come if you renew us and i think they will i hope they will um but before we we, we like make our votes we got to point out the comics don't end here there are four other issues now we've already touched on i think two of them the calliope and the um the midsummer's night dream issue now there are two other issues so let's talk about those there's one uh, called like a dream of a thousand cats or yeah, something. Which is wild. And it's That's the whole awesome. issue is so wild. It's all from the, these cat perspectives. It's literally a cat, it's a cat. A cat going on an adventure. Cat goes on an adventure, joins a bunch of other cats, and they go and listen to this other cat tell this story that the cat has been telling over and over again about the time that this cat <laughs> um, had a bunch of kittens that then got murdered by uh, their owner, uh, which was like a pretty horrific moment in the comic um and then that injustice uh that cat would decided to go, like have a dream and like seek out this dream cat that you know <laughs> that, that she had heard of and finds our version of dream as a cat which i loved seeing this big black cat with the they still had the stars in the eyes but it was this giant black cat 
I thought that was all really fun. And then the the sort of like final moment of the comic is this this implication that um, if if just a thousand cats could dream of a world where they were in charge of humans and like were the big ones and humans were like little pets, then it would become true. Um, which is a fun little like you know what if that was the case kind of thought. But it's basically said that like cats are too sort of. Uh stuck in their ways to change yeah it's like when have you ever got a thousand you know cats to do anything together so it's like the implication is that it'll probably never happen but maybe and there are a few panels where we see what that world looked like where it was like these right. giant house cats like chasing down and eating tiny humans but then humans <laughs> rose up and co- coordinated and all dreamt together and took that yeah, over it was the power of dreaming that changed the world and not only changed the future but like changed the past so that that had never happened yeah. And this kind of storytelling is what I love the Sandman for, is we can get a one-off that's batshit crazy. That's so cool. Yeah, I thought it was fun. And it's still in the same vein. It's still talking about the nature of dreams, the nature of storytelling, the power that dreams give us in our mind, like what these desires in our dreams will give us uh, in terms of motivating us to, to be the people we want to be. Well, and then let's talk about the other one we get. We get issue 20, which is the real finish of this uh, volume that we bought. Um, and... Here we have this character who's like element girl or something or element. And she's this collection of atoms that is able to configure in all these different ways. And she's like chain smoking at the beginning. And she's got something's wrong with her. We can't tell what it is. She's in this like room and she's afraid of everything. And this is another one that I think the, the sort of underlying message behind it is not a very good one. Um, because it felt to me like as a disabled person and, uh, it felt to me like it was a metaphor for disability and being different and, um, not sort of fitting the mold of society in every way. And the messaging was, it's such a horrific fate that she seeks death and tries to commit suicide over it. Um, now there are moments where it's uh, you know that you could argue against that you know where she 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 goes to this dinner and the woman she's with starts talking about these freaks outside and we see a bunch of disabled people so very directly tying it right and she's like oh they're not freaks they're just living their lives out there and, and you know kind of in defense of her but then her face falls off and she runs out and she's like it's her life is so horrific that she wants to end it. Um, yeah, and then death shows up. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have that experience, so like I didn't interpret it that yeah. way. But so so my my view on it was because the issue is called facade, and like as we entered into this idea of a of a superhero element girl who over time loses this identity or or in some way, I saw it as this like commentary on the idea of how naive story superhero storytelling can be in the way that they have this alter ego this other face that they put on and that's what people see and then when it's dropped the trauma and the actual like human being and what it would be like to actually have to contend with the things that these heroes have to because they very few superheroes deal with the trauma of like what goes on and everything and then this character i th- I, I interpret it as uh, a character who like we're seeing the humanity of the person behind a a, a, a false you know yeah, no, and I think that's situation. there, right? We see these faces on the wall. She's not able to discard them. They're parts of who she is. She's using one as an ashtray at one point. 
Um, so I think that's there too. And I think you're touching on what Gaiman's going for here. Um, I just think there's some unfortunate readings of this that I think it also is leaning into because, I, as I said, they directly point at a bunch of people and say. So. Yeah. And and that's uh, obviously there's a few of those issues we've touched on yeah. at this point where like things don't haven't held up quite as nice as Leah's. a few of them right here at the end, too. So and then we get death show up. She's she's there for someone else. But she um, has overheard her crying and just stops by to talk to her, this element girl. And this is where we get some of the lines that made it into like episode six of the show. And th- this is really interesting, too, because it's like she wasn't there for her. But this com- a conversation with death might bring about death. Yeah. It's is what it seems like, you know, because she-, she tells her basically how to do it. Yeah. She's like, if you really you know, want to be done, you got to talk to Ra. So it's also tied to this like Egyptian thing, which I assume is something that from the actual comic of Element Girl. I, this is not a character I know about. Oh, I'm not sure. I assume it's I don't a, know a character. I don't know anything. Well, about it the said character, um, yeah. at the bottom of the issue, like the title page of the issue, like Element Girl created by, and it was like two other names. So I think this is like an right. existing character. I knew it was an existing character. I'm just not familiar with the character at all. So I have no no idea what, what the backstory is there. But I, I, you know, this is also another opportunity for Gaiman to flex his like mythology thing where he loves to, to to reference these mythologies and to bring in the the egyptian mythology with with Ra is pretty sure. cool okay so these that's the, these four episodes are four issues here at the end of the comic run and i felt like these were some of the weakest um there was some there were some fun moments like the 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 cat stuff i thought was pretty fun some of midsummer's night dream was cool again i, I don't think i fully appreciated it because i didn't wasn't as familiar with the actual play i think it would have would have worked a little better. Yeah, I I actually really did like that one. I like I I think I would have loved it had I had I yeah. you know been more familiar with. And the then material. we had the Muse Calliope one, which was uh, I don't know. And then this Element Girl one, which was the final issue. I didn't think was that great. So we end on to me a, a kind of a weaker note. So all that being said, now I want to take our 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 moment to ch- decide what was the better version of Sandman. Now we are only going to compare Volume One and Season One of the show leaving op- door open for differing opinions going forward. Now, last our very first episode on Sandman, um, we both absolutely love the comic, and we said, I don't know if there's any way the show is going to be able to contend with this comic. Um, but I think we were both in agreement that this is a good adaptation. Um, maybe not perfect, but also the comics aren't perfect. Um, and we read more comic, and we got more show. So who wants to go first? Where are we at now? This is a great show. This is like one of the... I, I would say this is my fa- one of my favorite shows on Netflix for sure. Um, like no question, just in terms of what they created, the changes that they made and the updates that they made, I thought were all extremely smart. They were they were great updates, good notes, good changes, and and fleshed out characters in ways. I think you lose a little bit of the like. Is that you? Fire alarm. So that was interesting. Uh, Fire alarm went off and went outside for a good half hour or so, uh, but now it's now it's not going anymore, and we came back up. But uh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> the energy seems different. Uh, a little, <laughs> little sun break. You get to go outside, be in the sun, walk around. Yeah, so. it's pretty warm out. Um, anyway, uh, I believe you were in the middle of giving us your take on what was better. Do you remember? Hopefully, you can remember what you were saying. <laughs> I kind of do. Yeah. So what I I was saying basically was, you know, I think you miss out on some of dream being this like mysterious, powerful entity and you get more of that grounded human take on him. 
in in the show and like you know i i feel like you could go either way with that it's just up to preference like what you prefer on, in terms of that but relatability and being adapted for a show like i kind of understand the direction they went but i'm gonna take the comic here and i know that there are things that we really disliked and the updates were were significant i think the updates were needed as well like they were good updates that that stuff like just some of the stuff just doesn't hold up in the comic but in terms of like the artistry and i think the impact for this comic like uh, just reading through and getting to fall in love with another comic series and it's a that sort of blend of the written and visual medium so it's like a it's like a middle ground for us a little bit so i i enjoy that space and just overall the the what they captured with this character that's become iconic and and the the art style is so uniquely its own and i've talked about the cover pages how they're like sort of realism sort of photography yeah. kind of things continue to be really I, there's just so much about it that i like visually and then the storytelling is really strong um and it with it being the source and you're a big comics fan if people are surprised yeah. to hear this you're you're a big comics guy too in addition to being a movie movie connoisseur <laughs> and that's kind of why i i couched it in the idea that like it is a visual medium that i can i can kind of look at cinematically and and like analyze it in those ways and yeah i just think there's a lot going on for it here I do think that going forward, I don't, you know, I haven't read more of the comic or the show, but I think going forward, the show could overtake the comic for Mm, me mm -hmm. because of how good some of the changes have been. But currently, like where we're at, I just love sort of the the framework of what they've set up with the comic. And and like I said, one of my favorite shows on Netflix, I am dying for more of the show, but I'm taking the comic here. Okay. So I already had my opinion established, so I haven't been influenced by you. Um, Okay. So in our first episode I said it's going to be a really tall order for the show to overtake the comic because I was loving the comic so much felt like it you know it's definitely my shit um in the second part that we read of the comics um continued to be really cool definitely up my alley but we talked about how the final few issues were these sort of one-offs and I wanted to ask you actually if we can just take a moment is this something that's common in like big comic runs where um, every now and then between like arcs that are all linked, you'll get a few kind of standalone issues. Is this a comic, common comic thing? I would say the, the idea of having like a large comic run and having one-off stories that are sort of not necessarily connected to the overarching th- like run. Yeah. That's definitely common. Okay. Do I, but I think this comic does it in ways that other comics would never be so bold as to do. Okay. Like it, it you know, like the it totally, like it might just be like Batman goes to the beach or something. You know okay. what I mean? Like a one-off. There, so there is some occasionally stuff like that. There's definitely stuff like that yeah. in, in most comics. I would say there's usually like an issue here or there that doesn't necessarily like go along with the, yeah. the overarching story. But okay. this, like I said, th- these are like the way that these are still threaded back in thematically and, and to flesh out the world. Like I, I just, I find it to, to be so unique. So I did think that these were some of the weakest uh, issues at the end here. And to me that made the comic kind of sputter a little bit and it didn't end as, uh, as an, as strong a note as the end of um, issue 16 was, which, granted, was was there in the comic. Um, so kind of overstated its welcome a little bit for me. Not that I completely disliked everything that happened at the end, but, you know, that that combined with the fact that the show ends, I think, in a better place, a smart place. I think it's a, it's a good adaptation. I think, uh, you know, in many ways, modernized. I think that they did some clever work with the character um, to where the show, all of a sudden rises up and actually comes within striking distance to me of the comic. And I, I didn't think this was possible. 
And by the end of it, I was like, well, maybe it is going to be the show. But I, I sat with it for a bit and, and really thought on it. And, and ultimately, I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to give it to the comic. Um, but it was a it was a close contender and I didn't think we were going to get there. So that is, I think, to me, a testament to how good the show is more than anything else. Um, the comic art style, fantastic. Storytelling is, is so good. Um, something about Dream, I think, is the thing that wins over the comic for me. As much as I like this portrayal, and I think it's like it's going to happen because you've you've taken this inhuman character and given it a human actor, right? Like I, I've talked about how that, that already is going to ground the character, but just the way Gaiman is able to convey this eternal being, this endless being, and the power that Dream has tied to his realm and uh, the way he can sort of break reality in the comic comes across in such a cool way that I don't think has quite, the show hasn't quite risen to that level. There are moments, like when he's standing on the beach, uh, in the first episode when he's sitting in the chair and, and the roof comes off, like there are moments that approach it, but that happens so much in the comic and it's always so cool and it's in different ways constantly. Whereas still fairly often he just feels like he's a guy in the show. Um, I think that's the thing that sets the comic apart for me. Um, neither are perfect, perfect, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it to the comic, which, you know, I'm not a big comics guy. I'm still fairly new to the medium. Although at some point, I guess I'm gonna have to stop saying that because now I've read a lot of the biggest runs, uh, the coolest, you know, most respected comics there are. Um, but still like I didn't grow up with them. So I don't know. I always feel like I'm kind of a newbie to it. Um, yeah, I loved it. And I, you know, the inventiveness on display with like how the, how they did the paneling and everything. So cool. Um, so it sounds like we're both in agreement. Ultimately, it's going to be the comic, which is one of the best comics of all time, one of the most legendary comics of all time. So I think that's appropriate. But good show. Liking the adaptation. Would be excited to come back for season two. Maybe they'll do like volume two and we can do a similar kind of coverage. Um, if that's something you'd like to hear us do, let us know because we'll be more likely to do it if we hear uh, if we hear from our listeners that that's something they want. Selfishly, I would like to do that. Season two, like I'd like to continue the story. Otherwise... I'm going to have to continue the comics because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really want to keep going. I agree. Okay, so we don't know exactly what we're going to be covering next week. It's going to come down to that poll. So if you'd like to influence it, make sure to check us out. So it's on patreon.com slash ink to film. Uh, you go on there, you'll be able to vote. You'll also be able to listen to all of our monthly exclusive uh, bonus episodes we do. Um, and we'll continue to release uh, every month. So hopefully you check that out. Patreon.com slash ink to film. If you wanted to help out the podcast in another way, you could leave a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening on. I know Apple Podcasts is a big one, Spotify, like wherever you're listening, we appreciate those and it helps to get the word out and, and keep the podcast growing. Yeah. Speaking of getting the word out, we're on social media. We're on uh, we're at Ink to Film on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, connect with us. Also, you know, if you see our posts on there and you, and you you like the episode, feel free to share them. Um, we would love to see that. Share them to the, to your networks. Um, we're not a huge show and we'd like to get the word out. And word of mouth is a great way to do it. And thank you to Jeremy Blake for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So here we are at the end of our Sandman coverage. And I was just thinking about how I often fall asleep with podcasts playing in my ears and how mm. some theoretically... Someone could be doing that. In fact, I've heard from at least one person that they have fallen asleep with us in their ears. So if that's the case, we are sort of in this like liminal dreaming space. Uh, and we ourselves are, are sandmen. Yeah, we'll see you in the dreaming. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, yeah, until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.